Chapter 11 A Perfect Cure for Poverty and All Other Evils of the Day Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 through 30 Human life is full of evils. Poverty, sickness, bereavement, failure, bitterness of heart, despair, and death. If we could see all the tears that have been shed in America today, hear all the sighs, groans, wails, and shrieks that have been uttered, or witness the heartbreak and despair that have found no visible or audible expression, we would believe in hell. Not in a hell lying beyond the grave, but a hell existing right here and now. That might make it easier for us to believe in a hell hereafter. But is there no cure? Must this all go on and on forever? No, it need not go on. There is a perfect cure for all the ills that man is heir to, a cure that is sovereign, sufficient, sure, and speedy. Jesus Christ announced that cure nearly 1,900 years ago, but the overwhelming majority of men and women have not listened, so our evils, miseries, and despair continue. This cure that our Lord Jesus Christ proposed for all our ills is in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Christ Jesus himself is the cure for all our evils. He came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He does it for all who receive him. Poverty, sickness, bereavement, failure, bitterness of heart, despair, and death, as well as sin and unbelief, are all works of the devil, and we can be done with them by coming to Jesus, the Christ of God. I propose to take up these various evils and show how Jesus, the Christ of God, is the cure for them, and how each one of us may be done with them right now. Jesus Christ is the cure for sin. We begin with the greatest of all evils, sin. Men tell us poverty is an evil, and I believe it. They tell us sickness is an evil, and I believe that too. But the monster evil, the evil that lies at the root of all other evils, is sin. Sin is the first great evil to get rid of. The preachers of the social gospel and all these philanthropists who are trying to lift men out of their miseries while leaving them in their sins mean well, but they are attempting the impossible and admit utter disappointment. It is like trying to rid men of some sickness by attacking the symptoms and not going to the root of the disease itself. It is like trying to cure smallpox by merely painting the pustules. Sin is the radical evil, the root evil. So we begin there, and that is where we all need to begin in our own lives. Jesus Christ is the cure for sin. Christ Jesus is the cure for sin in the individual. First of all, Christ Jesus saves from the guilt of sin. Sin cuts men off from God. God is infinitely holy, so sin makes a great gulf between us and the holy being who rules this universe, 
the being whom we call God, the only being who is worthy to be called God. Separated from God, cast off from His grace and power, it is impossible for us to fight sin in our own strength. But Jesus Christ removes the barrier between God and us. He takes our guilt upon Himself, and therefore, as soon as we take Him as our sin-bearer, we have again perfect access to God and to His strengthening, delivering, and transforming grace. We read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Him who knew no sin, God, made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. One day some years ago, I heard a man who was raised from childhood as a thief. He had spent years in prison in various states in the Union and in other lands, but he had come to see that God loved him, vile as he was. He learned that Jesus had died for him, and he told the story of how faith in this Christ, Christ Jesus, had opened the way to God and salvation for him. Thousands upon thousands could tell essentially similar stories. Christ Jesus is beyond question, on the testimony of countless competent witnesses, a cure for the guilt of sin. This last week I stood on the street waiting for a car, and a man stepped up to me to talk to me. I thought at first he was going to talk about the common subjects of the day, as so many do. But instead of that, he at once asked, Do you think a man can sin away the day of grace? I looked into his face and into the depth of his eyes, yes, into the depths of his soul. I saw the anxiety and sorrow that were in his heart, so I asked him, Why do you ask? Then he opened his breaking heart to me right there on the street, and I was able to speak to him of our glorious gospel and how, according to it, all our sins have been laid on Jesus Christ and settled. I told him how Jesus had said, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John chapter 6 verse 37 A new light and a new hope came into the man's eyes, and when I left him to take the car, there was a smile of peace upon his face. No other gospel than the gospel of the Christ who was crucified for our sins will bring a profound sense of sins forgiven to a man. No other gospel will assure him that no matter how many or how great his sins may have been, there is pardon for him on the ground of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. With that single but all-sufficient ground, he has access to God. But the Lord Jesus Christ saves not only from the guilt of sin, he also saves from the power of sin. This man of whom I spoke a few moments ago, as having been brought up in childhood as a thief, who had spent years in prison in this country and other lands, told of the desperate struggles he had made to break away from the power of sin and be a man. But failure followed failure, and despair stared the man in the face. Then he took Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, and the fetters of sin, the fetters of the appetite for drink, the fetters of impurity and profanity, and a host of evil habits were snapped away in a moment. This is only one case in thousands. Christ is a sure cure for sin, a sure deliverer from the power of sin, 
no matter how deep-seated and desperate the case may be. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then Paul added his own experience, of whom I am chief. This statement of Paul's was true, of course. Every statement in the Bible is true, but this particular statement that Jesus Christ came to save the chief of sinners if he will only put his trust in him, I have seen verified in countless instances. One morning at the close of the morning service in the People's Church in Minneapolis, of which I was then pastor, one of my deacons stepped up to a gentleman and said, Are you a Christian? No, sir, he replied. Why not? the deacon asked. I am too great a sinner to be saved, was the reply. To his amazement, the deacon exclaimed, Thank God! Then the deacon turned to me on the platform and called, Brother Tory, here is a man who says he is too great a sinner to be saved. Thank God! The gentleman looked more bewildered than ever. I stepped down to him and asked, Is what the deacon says true? Yes, he said. I am too great a sinner to be saved. Though he had the appearance of a gentleman, he was a great sinner. He had run away and left his wife in Toronto, Canada, and was squandering his manhood and his money in gambling in Minneapolis. He had lost $35,000 at the gaming table just the week before. When he said he was too great a sinner to be saved, I said, Let me show you something. And opening my Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, I asked him to read. And he read, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Then he said, Well, I am chief. Well, I said, then it means you. It is a precious promise, he said. Will you accept it now? I asked. He said, I will. I said, Let us kneel down and tell God so. We knelt side by side and prayed, and when he rose, he knew that God had forgiven all his sins. He left the following week for the Northwest, and I lost track of him for nearly a year, for he never wrote to me. Then I learned that he had returned to St. Paul and was working every night for the salvation of others. He had brought his wife from Toronto, and they were reunited and so happy in their new life that they had adopted a little girl from an orphanage to make their home complete. No man need continue in sin. God has provided a cure. The Lord Jesus Himself tells us what that cure is. If the Son, the Son of God Jesus Himself, therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John chapter 8 verse 36. Jesus Christ is the cure for sin in society. Jesus Christ is not only the cure for sin in the individual, he is also the cure for sin in society as a whole. Men propose various remedies for the cure of sin and crime in the world. The best of those remedies will prove only partially effective. Whatever prohibition laws may accomplish, they will never banish sin or crime. I believe in prohibition. I believe it was a good thing. It is a great thing in many ways, as many of us know from personal observation and experience when the prohibition enactment went into effect in this land. But prohibition does not banish sin, and it never will. There has been more sin and crime in our country since the adoption of prohibition than before. Prohibition is not to blame for that. 
there are numerous causes, prominent among which is the fact that we are reaping the aftermath of the war, World War I. Oh, war is a hellish thing, a most damnable thing. Crime would have been even worse, far worse than it is, if it had not been for prohibition. But while prohibition is not to blame for the increase of sin and crime, the increase of sin and crime after the adoption of prohibition does show that prohibition will not cure sin. Neither will any other kind of external law cure sin, no matter how wise and beneficent the law may be. Jesus Christ alone, the personal Jesus Christ, is the cure for sin in the individual and also the cure for sin and crime in the state, in the home, and in society in general. His coming again will utterly banish sin and crime from the earth, so that righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9. Jesus, then, is the cure for all sin in every aspect of its working. Jesus Christ is the cure for unbelief. The next greatest evil to sin is unbelief. Indeed, the two go hand in hand. Where sin reigns, unbelief reigns. Where unbelief reigns, sin reigns. Unbelief begets sin, and sin fosters further unbelief. Undermine the faith of men in the Bible, the God of the Bible, and the Christ of the Bible, and a carnival of lust, greed, passion, hate, dishonesty, murder, and war with all its accompanying horrors is the result. Increasing unbelief is one of the chief causes, the one fundamental cause of lust, crime, immorality, immodesty, indecency, lawlessness, robbery, and murder that is sweeping over our land today. Our schools, colleges, and universities have been undermining faith in the Bible, the God of the Bible, and the Christ of the Bible, and we are reaping the harvest, and an awful harvest it is. The things I read in the newspapers about men and women being held up and robbed every night, and sometimes murdered, are depressing. But to a man who looks ahead with a clear eye, they are not as depressing as what one sees everywhere of the immodest, bold, shameless conduct of the rising generation. The conduct of our high school boys and girls, and yes, with our elementary school boys and girls. Unbelief has come into our schools and homes like a flood. Many of our boys and girls are not in Sunday school, studying the one book of all other books that makes for noble character and good citizenship. Instead, they are off spending the weekend in the mountains, boys and girls together, and down at the seashore, watching and joining in immodest parades and various other things. They are also at the movies by the thousands, movies whose chief attraction is often indecency. Take any daily paper, and you will find that it advertises indecent movies with grossly suggestive pictures to allure the young, advertisements of such a character that not many years ago a paper would have been prosecuted if it had dared to publish them. Even the YWCA that is supposed to be a Christian institution and an arm of the church takes hiking parties of young girls on the Lord's Day. It takes them away from home and Sunday school and church to spend the weekend in a canyon. A further spread of infidelity in our city would bring more profit to the bootleggers, gambling houses, and brothels than a governmental subsidy. But men say, that may be so, but I cannot help my unbelief. 
If I cannot believe, I cannot, and that is all there is to it. No, that is not all there is to it. There is a cure, a sure cure for unbelief. The cure is Jesus Christ. Go to Jesus Christ. Tell Him your unbelief. Make a clean breast of it. Tell Him you cannot believe in the Bible. You cannot believe in God. You cannot believe in Him the way Christians claim to believe in Him. But tell Him also that if the Bible is true, you want to know it. If there is a God, you want to know it and want to know Him. Tell Him that if He is the Son of God, you want to know that too. And tell Him that if He will show you, then you will accept Him as your Savior and surrender to Him as your Lord. You will confess Him as such before the world. Then take the words of Jesus as they have been recorded in the four Gospels, and take in particular the Gospel of John, and read it honestly, looking for light and obeying the light as fast as you get it. Your skepticism and your unbelief will soon vanish. My friend, you may not be to blame for your unbelief, but you will be to blame if you continue in it, for I have pointed out a cure. Thousands have tried this cure. It has never failed in one single instance. For years I stood in the pulpit of the Moody Church in Chicago and challenged unbelievers to come to me, and I would show them a rational cure for their unbelief. And if it did not succeed in any case, I would let the unbeliever speak from that platform. Many came, but there was never a case of failure, not a single one where men really took the remedy suggested. One night a man was brought to me. He had boasted very loudly that he wanted to ask me a few questions. Well, I asked him a few. I asked him if he thought there was an absolute difference between right and wrong. He said yes. Well, I said, then you ought to take your stand and follow the right wherever it carries you. Will you do it? He tried to hedge, but I held him to it, and finally he said yes. Then I asked him if he knew that there was no God, or if he knew that God did not answer prayer. He replied, No, I do not know it. In fact, I think there is a supreme being. But he added that he did not believe that this supreme being answered prayer. Well, do you know he does not answer prayer? I asked. No, he replied. I do not know that he does not. Well, I said, I know that he does, but I do not ask you to take my word for it. Try it for yourself. Here is a possible clue. It may be that God answers prayer. If you are as honest as you say you are in your search for truth, you will try this clue and discover what may be in it. Will you pray this prayer? O God, if there be any God, show me if Jesus Christ is your Son or not. If you will show me that He is, I promise to accept Him as my Savior and confess Him as such before the world. He tried now to hedge and crawl more than ever. He wanted to ask me what life was and many other irrelevant questions. But I held him to the point. I showed him that what was wrong was that he did not care to pray. But at last, in desperation, he got down on his knees and in his excitement kicked over a chair and blurted out the words of a prayer. Now, I said, will you take the Gospel of John and read it? honestly looking for light, and come back in two weeks and tell me the result. Yes, I will, he said. But he never came back. Why not? You know, he did not want to be cured of his unbelief. He wanted unbelief 
because he wanted sin. But many did come back, and they all came back cured. I have been making the same offer for many years now in many cities, many states, and many lands, and there has never been a single case of failure yet. No man has yet come back who has been able to tell me that he had taken the remedy and remained a skeptic. Now, if you doubt that cure, try it yourself. Jesus Christ is the cure for poverty. The third evil I desire to refer to is poverty. Jesus is the cure for poverty. I stand with Henry George when he says poverty is an evil. Men may get good out of poverty. Many men have gotten good out of poverty, but poverty is an evil. It is all very well for philosophers like Seneca, whom Ingersoll lauded and exalted above Paul and Jesus Christ, to write about the excellencies of poverty when they themselves are squandering, as Seneca himself did, vast fortunes in the most extravagant luxury. Such philosophy may suit a reckless discharger of verbal pyrotechnics, such as Colonel Ingersoll, but it will not suit honest, thinking people who love their kind and keep their eyes open. Poverty is an evil. When I walk through the homes of the poor in various cities of this and other countries, I see the crowding, breathe the poisonous air, and hear the curses, oaths, and obscenities that greet the ears of the innocent children from the day they open their eyes to the day they are carried out to the potter's field. When I hear and see these things, I feel like saying, Cursed be poverty. Poverty is an evil, and I hate it. I hate it not only for myself, but I also hate it for the sake of those who suffer from it. I cannot walk among the homes of the poor without heartache, and I do not wish to. Poverty is an evil. Jesus Christ is the cure. Jesus Christ is the cure for poverty with the individual. First of all, Jesus Christ is the cure for the poverty in this life. There is no guarantee that if a man comes to Christ, he will become a man of wealth in this present life. That is not desirable for most men. Indeed, very few men have great wealth in this life who are not spoiled by it. But there is a guarantee that if one comes to Christ, really believing in Him as Savior and surrendering absolutely to Him as Lord and Master, their every real need will be supplied. Jesus Christ himself says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And the all these things are the things spoken of in the verses immediately preceding, food, drink, clothing, and the necessities of daily life. This statement of Jesus Christ is true. I have watched the testing of it under abnormally trying circumstances for forty years, and I have never known a case of failure. I have known cases of seeming failure, but when examined closely, I have found that the failure was not in the promise of God, but because people did not meet the conditions of the promise. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 19, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That great promise is also true when you meet the conditions stated in the context. I have seen these promises tested again and again in the most unpromising circumstances, and neither of them has ever failed. It has often seemed as if they were going to fail, but they never have. I have known many people who were in the most abject poverty 
who have attained to positions of comfort and plenty through accepting Jesus Christ. Many of them go trooping by in my memory as I speak. All over the city of Chicago and all over the country, there are people who have been lifted from poverty to plenty and affluence by the influence of one church, the Moody Church in Chicago. Not that this church has given them money, but that the church has brought them to Christ and Christ has brought them to plenty. The same is true of many churches throughout the land. As a matter of demonstrated fact, Jesus Christ is the cure for poverty with the individual. Jesus Christ is the cure for poverty in the life to come. The man or woman who accepts Jesus Christ becomes a child of God, and if a child, then an heir, an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. John chapter 1 verse 12, Romans chapter 8 verse 17. If the poorest beggar in the land were to accept Jesus Christ, that beggar would become at once an heir to estates whose magnificence far surpasses those of all the multimillionaires in the land. I pass by and behold the mansions of the rich in many cities. I enter and go through the magnificent palaces of kings and emperors, as I have done in many lands, and I say all this is nothing, nothing compared to what I am soon to have. Oh, I invite all to untold riches. For the child of God, there is just a little time before he receives an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away. Jesus Christ is the cure for poverty in society at large. How earnestly and fruitlessly social philosophers have sought for a cure for poverty. I think Henry George has come the nearest of anyone to hitting upon a cure that would be effective and practicable. But I confess I do not expect to ever see it put into operation in the large way it would be necessary to have it accomplish any real and permanent good. And even if it were put into operation, I would not expect to see all the results that its more sanguine supporters imagine would follow. There would still be poverty, because there would still be cunning greed on the one side and improvidence, laziness, and waste on the other side. But when Jesus comes again to reign, he will banish poverty. Love will reign. The lion and the lamb will lie down together, and the lamb will not be inside the lion, as is now so often the case. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. No more poverty. No more oppression. No more commercial warfare. No more ravaging of the strong, robbing the weak when Jesus Christ comes. Equality, fraternity, and plenty will reign everywhere. People ask me why I'm looking forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I long for the speedy coming of Jesus Christ for many reasons. But one reason is that I go out and see the poor thousands and tens of thousands in the great cities of our land. I see the human hogs that dominate the business, politics, and society of our day, who trample the weak under their feet and into the mud in their gluttonous desire to get at their garbage. I feel like crying, how long, O Lord, how long? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This is my only hope for those who are deprived in the present mad scramble that we call business. But that is an all-sufficient hope. He is coming, and when He comes, society will be reconstructed from the bottom up. The principle that governs human life will no longer be competition, 
that is, every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost. But when he comes, the governing principle of all society will be love your neighbor as yourself, and poverty, lack, and oppression will then be no more forever. Jesus Christ is the cure for poverty. If you wish to see poverty done away with, enlist in the army of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the cure for sickness. The next evil is sickness. Some people consider sickness a blessing, and God undoubtedly does make a blessing out of sickness for some of us. I have had sicknesses and pains for which I thanked God. But if I read my Bible correctly, sickness was a curse, and it belongs properly to the devil's kingdom and not God's. And I notice that most of the people who consider sickness a blessing are perfectly willing that the other fellow should enjoy all the blessings of this kind. If the blessing happens to come their way, they are willing to take all kinds of bitter pills and nauseating potions to rid themselves of this highly esteemed blessing. In plain, unvarnished English, sickness is a great evil. Jesus Christ is the cure for sickness. Jesus Christ is the cure for sickness in this present life. The general rule of God regarding His children is that God wishes them to be well, and Jesus Christ makes them well when they trust Him to do it. I am not going into the fine and disputed points about divine healing and the faith cure, but I know from personal experience and careful observation for many years that the Lord Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, has all power in heaven and on earth, and does cure sickness today. Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, has cured many a man and woman who has been hopelessly sick for years and whom all physicians failed to heal. Jesus Christ's healing power will be manifested in the life to come. God's dearest and purest and noblest children do get sick and die in this life. But in the life that lies ahead, there will be no death, no sickness, and no pain. There will be, however, in that other world for those who reject Christ in this world, plenty of sickness, pain, and eternal death. Endless dying. O sick one, come to Jesus. He is the cure for sickness. Time fails me to mention other evils such as bereavement, disappointment, bitterness of heart, despair, and death, for which Jesus and only Jesus is the cure. Jesus Christ is the cure for every evil known to man. He stands now with outstretched hands, as He did that day in Capernaum when He uttered the words of our text, and He calls to us as He did to them. Scripture Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28-30. through 30.